message as we come to God's Word. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 19. Psalm 19. And after you find Psalm 19, turn over to Psalm 119. Psalm 19 and Psalm 119. The title of my message tonight is Questions to Ask When Reading the Bible. Questions to Ask When Reading the Bible. And tonight's sermon is part two of last week's sermon entitled Practical Helps for Effective Bible Reading. Psalm 19, verse 7. David says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. And then Psalm 119. Psalm 119, 130. The psalmist says, The entrance of thy words giveth light. It giveth understanding unto the simple. The entrance, the opening of God's word gives spiritual instruction and wisdom. Every time we open our Bible to read it, the psalmist is saying it brings light because it is light. Psalm 119, 105, God's word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Proverbs 6, 23, for the commandment is a lamp and the law is light and reproofs of instruction are the way of life. The Apostle John says in 1 John that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now John is not saying that God is some kind of scientific energy for Jesus says that God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. When John says that God is light, he is saying that God is perfect. And we know this to be so because he emphasizes the fact that in him is no darkness at all. As light is opposed to the darkness, so God is opposed to sin, Satan, and evil. God is light, that is, God is pure, God is holy in His person and works. God is the source of wisdom, knowledge, holiness, and happiness. God is as a light. He's pure. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And how fitting for Jesus to say this, because the prophets of old prophesied that when Messiah would come, he would be a light to the Gentile world. And Paul says, Christ would open the eyes of the Gentiles and to turn them from darkness to light 
from the power of Satan unto God. Are you seeing the theme of light? God the Father is light. In Him is no darkness at all. Jesus, God's Son, is light. And then regarding the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, Jesus says of Him, John 14, 26, but the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, He shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Paul says in Ephesians 1 and Colossians 2 that it is the Spirit who is the Spirit of wisdom and revelation. It is the Spirit who brings illumination to our hearts so that we might see who Christ is. The Spirit is light, revealing the light of Christ, which reveals the light of the knowledge of God. So join it all together. The Father is light. The Son is light. The Spirit is light. In God's Word, which exclusively speaks of the saving message of the gospel through the person and works of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is light. So in a very real way, every time we open up the pages of God's Word, we are being exposed to spiritual light because we are being exposed to God. But it's more than that. Opening the Bible is not enough. As I mentioned this morning, the Pharisees heard and read and knew God's Word, but they remained blind to who God was. What the psalmist says in Psalm 119, 130 also refers to the opening of our heart's door to the light of God. The entrance of God's Word brings light. When we open up God's Word, while we open up the heart's door to the message of God's Word, it brings light. Yet on the other hand, when we open up God's Word and close our hearts to it, we remain in darkness. So here we have the principal truth of profiting from God's Word, whether it's in a church service like this or in our home reading God's Word one-on-one. If we are to profit from God's Word as God's desires, we must come with a humble, teachable, open heart wanting the truth of God to penetrate our heart, mind, and soul. We must come with ears ready to hear what the Spirit says. And sadly, the reason why so many don't grow in their faith. The reason why so many professing Christians don't grow in their understanding of who God is is directly related to the fact that they don't expose their hearts to the light of God's Word. Or, in their pride, they think they know everything they need to know, and so they resist the light. But the psalmist says, the entrance... The exposure, the invitation of God's Word brings light. It brings understanding. And it brings understanding of all things, doesn't it? If you're in Christ tonight, you know the Word brings understanding regarding who God is. It brings understanding regarding how everything was created. 
The word brings understanding regarding who we are, how we got here, what our purpose is. The word brings understanding regarding what sin is, why there's death in the world, how sin can be forgiven, what God has done for sinners. God's word brings understanding regarding what God expects of us, how we are to live before God and men. God's word brings understanding regarding how the consummation of all things will breathe. The entrance of God's word brings light. If only we would read it. If only we would believe it. If only we would obey it. We would find that the law of the Lord is truly perfect. It does convert the soul. It rejoices the heart. It enlightens the eyes. And it gives wisdom to those who want to be wise. The entrance of God's word brings light. And last week I gave you a few fundamental instructions that will help us develop and maintain a healthy routine of seeking God through His Word, as well as several practical counsels regarding the way in which we should read God's Word. And this week I want to add to what I said last week by giving you 10 useful questions you ought to ask yourself as you are reading the Bible, so that when you come to God's Word you will truly benefit in striving to know God through the revelation of His Word. So jumping right into things tonight, question number one, if you're taking notes, as you come to God's Word day by day, keep these questions at the forefront of your mind so that you might grow in your understanding of who God is, so that you might invite the light of God into your soul. Question number one, what is the text saying? Or said another way, what is the meaning of the text? As you're reading through your Bible, you need to be asking yourself the question, what does this mean? What is God saying? So for instance, let's say at the beginning of this year, as you started your Bible reading program most of you, January 1st started in Genesis chapter 1 or Genesis chapter 1 and 2. So as you come to God's Word with your desire to read through the Scriptures in a year, Genesis 1-2 is before you. You read Genesis 1 and 2 and then in your reflecting upon what you read in those two chapters, you need to ask the question, what does the text that I just read mean? All right, let's start with the first verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What does it mean? Well, it means what it says. It's very simple and obvious, and most of the time it will be simple and obvious. Our problem is we make the Bible complicated. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What does it mean? It means that in the beginning, God was there. He is before all things. God is eternal. He existed before the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.1 means that God is the creator of all. He is sovereign. He is almighty. And then moving onward through the passage, we find that God created everything ex nihilo out of nothing through the proclamation of his word. God said, let there be light, and there was light. 
God divided the light from the darkness, and it was so. So, what does it mean? God created everything. And he created everything exactly as he desired. God created everything in six literal days. God created male and female to be uniquely different. And we can go on in the text thinking about what the text actually says. But the point I'm trying to establish under this first question is that there is only one meaning of the text. So it's important to ask yourself, what does this mean? What is God saying through his word? As opposed to, listen, as opposed to what do I think this says? What do I want this to say? What do others tell me this text means? Do you see the difference? How do you get, listen, how do you get millions of years of God creating when you simply read God's word as it is? Day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six. You see, millions of years in Genesis 1 is a fairy tale read into the Bible. It's not read out of the Bible. And the same thing is true with this nonsensical idea in 2024 America that there are over 100 genders. How do you come to believe that there are 100 genders when God firmly establishes the point that when He created man, He created them distinctly male and female? That's it. What does the text mean? It means what it means. So question number one, as we come to God's word, we need to ask the question, what does the text say? What is its meaning? And then question number two. Question number two is, what is the context of the text? What is the context of the text? And by context, I mean the surrounding circumstances of the biblical text. So asking the questions, what is the background? Who's the author? Who's the audience? What specific circumstances led up to what is being said in the text? Where is the author? Where is the audience the author is speaking to? Where are they located? When was the truth of the text spoken? Why did God say what he said? And how or in what way is God proclaiming truth? Now, if you're paying attention, you will realize that what I just gave you are the investigative questions that you learned in grade school. Who, what, where, when, why, how? All right, so let's go back to Genesis 1 through 3. Because I think most of you have come to Genesis 1 through 3, the beginning of the year. So you're reading Genesis 3. And in your contemplation of that chapter, we ask, who? Who is the text speaking of? Well, in Genesis 3, we have four different individuals. We have God, we have Satan, we have Adam, we have Eve. That's the stage. That's who's involved in the narrative. Genesis 3, God, Satan, tempting Eve. 
Eve there with Adam. Mankind before God. The enemy of God, Satan, trying to disturb God's creation. To worship him over God. So who? And then what? What's going on? Well, the serpent is enticing Eve to sin. Adam disobeys God's clear command. Adam and Eve hide from God. Adam and Eve start blaming other people for their sin. And because of what happened, God pronounces a curse on Satan. And then the consequences of Adam and Eve and all mankind are given by God. God in His grace covers Adam and Eve's nakedness with coats of skin. And then God sends them away from the garden. So we have established who and then what. And then from that question, where? Where is Genesis 3 taking place? In the garden. In the garden, a place of plenty. A place that exhibits God's grace. Remember, God told Adam that he could freely eat of all the trees except for one. Remember, it was in the cool of the garden where Adam enjoyed fellowship with God. What a blessed place where man rebelled. So we've established who, we've established what, we've established where, and then when. When did this take place? It took place after Genesis 1 and 2. Let's go back to first grade, because after 1 and 2 comes 3. This comes after God created all things. This comes after God declared that all He created was good. God is good. And man in his rebellion made everything bad. And then why? Why did God say what he said? God said what he said because he takes his word seriously. He says what he means and means what he says. How, how did God say what he said? He said what he said to Satan condemningly. He said what he said to Adam and Eve directly and commandingly. He questioned Adam and Eve about what they did. Remember all the questions probing Adam and Eve? Who told you that you were naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I have commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? What is it that thou hast done? So we see over and over God coming to Adam and Eve, asking questions, bringing conviction to their heart. This answers the how. And then in that we find that God spoke to them not only seriously and directly, but mercifully and illustratively. God shed the blood of an innocent animal to clothe them with coats of skin. God proclaimed to the guilty parties that He would provide a Messiah to come to forgive them of their sin. So tying question number one with question number two, we find in our examination of Genesis 1-3 through that God created all things good. And Adam, as the representative of all mankind, through his rebellion against God's command, caused there to be sin and death in this world. And this truth is reiterated by Paul, Romans 5.12. Wherefore, as by one man's sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have Sin. So question number one, what does the text say? What does it mean? Question number two, 
What is the context of the text? And then question number three, what does the text teach us about God? Don't lose me here. What does the text teach us about God? When you're reading the Bible, you need to ask yourself this question. Where is God? Where is God in this text? And who is God? What is he like? How is he referred to? Now again, let's stick with the first three chapters of Genesis. We're already there. What do the first three chapters of Genesis teach us about God? So you're zooming out from the text, examining it in a God-focused perspective. What does it teach us about God? It teaches us that God is eternal. In the beginning, God was there. It teaches us that God is sovereign. God is the God of all gods. And God does what He wants, when He wants, however He wants, where He wants, however He wants. How do we know this? We know this because God did not depend upon man in creating all things to be. How do you think I should make the sun, the moon, the stars? How do you think I should arrange the universe? Remember God's questioning of Job? Job, were you there in the beginning? Are you sovereign? Who are you, a little puny, tiny, sinful worm, to tell me what I can do and how I can do it? Paul uses the same argument. Shall the thing that is formed, the clay, say thus to the potter, why have you made me thus? Are you sovereign? No, God is sovereign. We see that in Genesis chapter 1. As God desires it, He speaks it. So God is eternal. God is sovereign. God is all-powerful. God is the creator of all. God is the sustainer of all. God is a God of order. God made the earth before He made man so that man can have a place to live. God is a God of order, not chaos. Also, we learn that God is communicative. That is, God speaks. He reveals Himself to man. God is a triune being. Do you realize that we read that in Genesis chapter 1? Genesis 1-2, the Bible says, And the Spirit of God... Don't listen to these weird preachers. The Spirit was never in the Old Testament until the day of Pentecost. Nonsense. The Spirit is all over the Old Testament. The Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Genesis 1-26, And God said, Let us make man in our image. And later in John chapter 1, we find that in the beginning... The Word, Jesus Christ, the eternal Son, was there at the creation of all things. So Genesis 3 teaches us that God is a triune person. He's Father, He's Son, He's Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And then Genesis 3 also teaches us that God is a faithful God. He says what He means, and He means what He says. God always keeps His Word. In the day that you eat of that tree, listen, you will die. And Satan comes along and says, God is a liar. He's not going to keep his word. And what do we find out? God is true. He's not a man that he should lie. God is faithful. We read in Genesis 3 that God is a judging God. God judges sin. Yet at the same time, God is a gracious and merciful God. Rather than condemning Adam and Eve straight to hell for their rebellion, God in His grace provided coats of skins and clothed them. 
which is illustrative of our need to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So we have that theme of guilt and grace, our guilt and God's grace. We've sinned against God, yet God has provided a lamb whereby our guilt can be covered. So as you're reading through the Bible, in every chapter, in every storyline, in every command, in every genealogy, yes, even in the genealogies, ask yourself, what does this teach me about God? You say, what can I learn from the genealogies? I just crossed my eyes. God will preserve life so that Messiah will come. Man makes a mess of things, but God will see his promise come to pass. If you get nothing else from the genealogies, get that. God is the giver of life. He preserves men. And if he promised to bring a Messiah, the Messiah will come through a genealogy of people. And we see Matthew 1, the genealogy is there. Messiah has come. So you might not be able to pronounce all the names, but you can rejoice in the fact that God is a promise-keeping God. So as you go to Scripture, ask yourself, what does this teach me about God? God's Word is about God. What does it teach me about God? And then question number four, what does the text teach me about man? What does it teach me about man? Let's stick with Genesis 3. What does Genesis 3 teach us about man? What does it teach us about our nature? About who we are? Well, It teaches us that we are accountable to God. We are not a God unto ourselves. He has created us. We will stand before Him one day. We're accountable to Him. It teaches us that God sees us, doesn't it? The eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the evil and the good. Hebrews says, all things are naked and open unto the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. God sees us. He knows everything about us. He knows our thoughts. He knows our hearts. He knows our motives. Genesis 3 teaches us that we are sinful. And in our sin, we are prone to do this. We're prone to point the finger, place the guilt on others. Remember, Adam said to God, God, it's the woman that you gave me. She gave me of the tree and I did eat. Now, was that true? Yes. But Adam should have come before the Lord and said, Lord, you gave me your command. I broke it, so I'm guilty. But rather reflect and her fault. Not me, her. Come on, help me out. Take the halo off your head. Are we prone to do that? Well, it's the culture I grew up in. Well, you see, the home that I grew up in, my parents had these sinful tendencies, so therefore I am sinful. You just have to understand I have Irish blood, and Irish blood equals sin. We have a temper. We can't fix ourselves. They were blaming all these things. You don't understand the circumstances of my life. If you would understand the circumstances of my life, you would understand why I'm a sinner. And then what did the woman say? The woman said, the serpent beguiled me and I did eat. Oh, do we have that temptation? Well, the devil made me do it. The devil made me do it. The devil made me do it. The devil, it's not me. It's the devil. It's the devil. It's the devil. There's our sin nature right there, Genesis 3. Genesis 3 teaches us that we are prone to take God's blessings for granted. 
Here God gave Adam permission to eat freely of the tree of the garden. And in his discontentment with God, he wanted the one God said, don't eat. And then Genesis 3 teaches us that in our sin, it's our tendency to run and hide from God. In our sin, we try to clothe ourselves with things that will not cover our guilt before God. Adam and Eve made themselves fig leaves, tried to hide their guilt and shame. Well, guess what people do today? They make themselves religious fig leaves. Prayer, church attendance, confessional booths, catechism classes. That's sufficient. It's not sufficient. Genesis 3 teaches us that despite man's sinfulness, God is gracious. God has provided a way for men to be forgiven. Genesis 3.15, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. So when we come to read God's word, we look for God and we look for man. And that's what the Bible is all about. It's about God's interactions with man and man's interactions with God. And this fourth question connects with the fifth question, which is, what does the text teach us about God's dealings with man and man's response to God? All right, that's question number four. What does the text teach us about God's dealings with man and man's response to God? Genesis 2 and 3 teach us that God expects man to obey him. And when he doesn't, God will judge as he sees fit. Genesis 3 teaches us that God deals with men justly. He's a just God. And in our thinking of Genesis chapter 4 regarding Cain's sin, in killing his brother Abel, we find the same exact truths. God is gracious, Cain. If you would bring an offering in the right way, I'll accept it. But he doesn't. And so God judges justly. Man is sinful. God sees. God is long-suffering. God gives opportunity to do right. And God deals with men justly. So question number five is, what does the text teach us about God's dealings with man? What does it teach us about man's response to God? We're halfway through. Do we need an intermission? Let's review the first five questions. Question one, what does the text say? What does the text mean? Question number two, what is the context of the text? Question number three, what does the text teach us about God? All of the Bible is about God. In our coming to buy our Bibles, we ought to desire to know God. So what does it teach us about our God? Question four, what does the text teach us about man? What does it teach us about who we are, who others are, about how this world lives? Question five, what does the text teach us about God's dealings with man and man's response to God? And then question number six, where are the references of the person and work of Jesus Christ? This is one you need to nail fastly to the forefront of your mind. When you come to your Bible, ask, where is Jesus you do not understand that the whole Bible is about Christ, don't you? Therefore, we ought to look for Christ on every page. If you've not learned to read your Bible looking for Christ, your reading of Scripture is going to grow cold and distant. 
It's going to be factual rather than relational. It's going to be dull rather than delightful. Mark my words. So what I'm proposing to you is this. When you read the Bible, you must read the Bible with Christ constantly in view. Christ can be found in Genesis, in Exodus, in Leviticus, in Numbers, in Deuteronomy. Christ can be found in promises, in types, in figures, in foreshadows, in prophecies, in people. The gospel, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the blood atonement of Christ, Christ dying for sin, Christ dying for sinners, Christ covering sin can be found in all of the books of the Bible. So as you read, look for Christ. Look for the truths of the gospel. If you've not learned this truth, I'll give you the truth tonight. Genesis 1, first four verses. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep without life. What do we have there? We have a picture of man. Who is man? Man is empty without God. Man is in darkness without God. Man is without purpose. He's without form and void in a spiritual sense. And then the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters and God said, let there be light. And there was light. And then God saw that the light was good and God divided the light from the darkness. Do you see the gospel? If we are to be saved, God must speak light, gospel light, into our hearts. He must say, like Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth. Christ calls his sheep by name and they come forth. We're dead in trespasses and sin, but if God should speak our name through the power of the Spirit, we come forth. When he speaks light into our dark hearts, we are separated from darkness. God divides us from this world. Second Peter chapter 1, Peter says, The one who has true faith is separated from the corruption that is in the world through lust. There it is, Genesis 1. There's the gospel. Have you ever seen that in the creation? Where's Christ? He's right there. He's the one who calls by his word. He's the one who brings light into our darkness. He's the one who brings purpose in our world filled with despair and emptiness. Where's Christ in Genesis 1-3? Well, he's promised in Genesis 3-15. He's pictured in the coats of skin. Genesis 3-21, unto Adam and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. Where did the skins come from? Sacrifice had to be made. Well, that's not fair. Why didn't an innocent animal have to die for Adam and Eve? Because without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission. It's a picture of the blood sacrifice to come. God must clothe us in Christ's righteousness if we are to be saved. We cannot clothe ourselves. We can try to cover ourselves with religious fig leaves, but it's not going to be accepted by God. 
We sometimes think that our prayers, our righteousness, our religiosity is sufficient to cover our sin, but they are not. The only thing that is sufficient to make us right with God is God doing for us what we cannot do. Salvation is of the Lord. It's the Lord who made coats of skin, and it's the Lord who clothed them. You see, so salvation is entirely of God's grace. It's nothing that Adam and Eve did. They didn't work for it. They didn't deserve it. Salvation is by grace. There's the gospel. Keep moving through Genesis. Genesis 6 through 9, we have the story of Noah's ark. All who are inside the ark are safe. All who are outside the ark will die. They will face the judgment of God. Christ is our ark. All who are in Christ are eternally safe. All who are outside of Christ are doomed forever. Genesis 14, Jesus is the priest like Melchizedek. Genesis 22, Jesus is the substitutionary lamb. Abraham about to slay his son, Isaac his only son, and God provides a lamb. Genesis 37 through 50, Jesus is the rejected ruler. Joseph is a type of Christ. Joseph is rejected by his own brothers. Christ was rejected by his own people. And yet, Joseph is used to save much people alive. Joseph shows grace to those who sinned against him. There's Christ. There he is. So when you read the Bible, look for Christ. He's everywhere. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds. And the word is Christ. So look for him. So where are the references of the person and work of Jesus Christ? And then question seven. What are the key truths and principles of the text? What are the key truths and principles of the text? So as you're reading God's word, single out those verses that speak to the key principles of the biblical text. Ask yourself, what main truth is being emphasized? What chief principle is being alluded to? What is it that God wants me to understand? And as you find those truths, as you find those principles in the text, chew on it, meditate upon it, memorize it. So for instance, the other day, In my personal reading, I was in Matthew chapter 15. In Matthew 15, Jesus says, Hear and understand. Not that which goeth into the mouth defileth a man, but that which cometh out of the man. This defileth a man. And then answered Peter and said unto him, Declare unto unto us this parable. And Jesus said, Are ye also without understanding? Do not ye yet understand whatsoever entereth in at the mouth goeth into the belly and is cast into the drought? But those things which proceed out of the mouth cometh from the heart and they defile the man. All right, so in my pausing to perceive what the main text or principle truth was in that text, we're ruminating. What is it that Jesus is trying to teach? Well, He's trying to teach that man is often confused regarding the nature of sin. And we often think that sin is simply a matter of external habits, outward practices. But the main truth in Matthew 15 that Jesus is bringing to our attention is that man is a sinner by nature because, Jeremiah 17, 9, his heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Jesus is teaching us that we sin because we're sinners. The root of our sin problem is our heart. The heart of all problems is the problem of the heart. 
Which then leads us to see the message that Jesus is trying to establish, which is the heart must be changed in order for us to be right with God. Christianity is a message of heart conversion. So taking this into our evangelistic efforts, we must be sure that we tell others that what they need is not reformation, but transformation. What they need is a conversion of the heart. They need God to perform a spiritual operation on them where God takes away that stony heart of unbelief and replaces it with a heart of flesh. That's what it means to be born again. And I've never known anyone to do their own open heart surgery. If if you know somebody who's done that by themselves, let me know. It takes an outside source to do open heart surgery. And so it is with salvation. What people need is a cleansing of the heart. They don't need to pray more. They don't need to read their Bibles more. It's not their morality that will save. What they need is a new heart. They need a new nature, which is only given through the power of the gospel. That's the principal text. It's the heart that leads to all things. So you want to know why the world acts the way it acts? Their heart is evil. It's not culture. It's not their upbringing. It's their sin nature. In sin, Psalm 51, David says, in sin were we conceived. Did your mom and dad teach you how to lie? Did they teach you how to steal? Did they teach you how to commit adultery? Did they teach you how to lust? Did they teach you how to covet? Did they teach you how to worship false gods? Did your parents sit you down on their lap and say, here's how you get mad at your sibling and punch them in the face? Where'd you learn this? Where'd you learn to throw a temper tantrum? Where'd you learn to disobey your parents? Where did you learn to come in church and reject the things that God says through his word? Nature, your heart, your heart needs to be changed. Your heart is hard. That's what Jesus is saying. That's the principal truth. Matthew chapter 15. So what are the key truths and principles of the text? We have two more to go here. Three more to go. Question eight, how does the text I am reading apply to me? That's question eight. What does the text I am reading apply to me? And notice, I did not say, how does it apply to others? Don't read the Bible like a pharisaical police officer. Well, I'm going to search the scriptures so I can hammer everybody else regarding what God says. Now, what does the text say in its application to me? Remember, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that we might grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. So when you read the Bible, it's vital, it's vital that you personalize it. Remember, God's Word's like a mirror. Do you look in the mirror every morning? Examine yourself. You wake up and you scream as you look in the mirror. You've got a little attention to give to your face, to your hair. God's Word's like a mirror. God's Word is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of heart. So while there is a historical context of all that we read in God's Word, we must never dismiss the fact that God's Word is alive and it has application for our lives now, today, here, 2024. All Scripture is profitable for all times and all people. All Scripture is for us. So listen, if you come to God's Word with the attitude, well, that was just for the Jews thousands of years ago. 
you're not going to benefit from what is being said. If you approach God's word only in a technical, historical, storybook sense, you're going to miss the deeper meaning of Scripture. It's true that Leviticus speaks of various laws given to Israel and Aaron's sons regarding the priesthood and the sacrifices that are to be offered to God. But Leviticus teaches us that God is to be approached in a certain way. You see, that's the truth for us. God is holy. He needs to be approached in holiness, in reverence, in godly fear. What does Leviticus teach us? It teaches us that sin needs to be atoned for. There needs to be a sacrifice. So it's true that Jesus spoke the Sermon on the Mount to an audience mostly Jewish, but it's true that God has intended for us to benefit spiritually from the truths that He spoke. So when you read God's Word, ask yourself the question, how does this apply to me? Is there a warning I need to take heed to? Is there a command that God wants me to obey? Is there a doctrine I need to know? Is there a word of counsel? Is there a word of encouragement that I can be helped by? Is there something I need to change in my relationship with God? Is there something I need to change in my relationship toward others? Is there something I'm doing that I should not be doing? Is there something I'm not doing that I should be doing? You see, the goal of all Bible reading is application, obedience. That's it. Apply it. Live it out. Work it out. And this leads us to question number nine. What does God want me to believe and obey? Question nine. What does God want me to believe and obey? When you read God's word in prayer, ask yourself, what does God want me to believe? What truth or truths is God emphasizing in the text? And whether you like it or not, whether others like it or not, you need to believe it because God's word is true. Believe it. And then you need to ask yourself, what does God want me to obey? When we come to God's word, we need to be like Saul in Acts chapter 9. Lord, what do you want me to do with this truth? Do you want me to forgive as you have forgiven? Do you want me to marvel at your greatness? Do you want me to separate myself from the world more? Do you want me to be resolved in my seeking of you? So question number nine is essentially this. What can I put into practice today, right now? It's important to recognize once again that the blessing of God is in the doing of God's word, not in the hearing of God's word. Right? The entrance of thy word brings light. In keeping them, there is great reward. We are to be doers of God's word, not hearers only. And Jesus says it's the wise man the one who hears and obeys, who is putting God's Word into practice. So when we read God's Word, we need to ask, what does God want me to believe and obey? And then finally, question number 10. What do I struggle to understand that I can study out further? And this is the last question. What do I struggle to understand that I can study out further? So after we've read through the portion of Scripture we ask ourselves the nine preceding questions, then we get our spiritual shovel out and start digging deeper into the text. Now, remember what I said last week. I said, 
Read the Bible preeminently. Podcasts are helpful. Devotional books have their place in our life. But read God's Word first. Read it simplistically. Focus on the main truths of the text rather than getting bogged down by the things that are hard to understand, by those things that are unknown. And then, after you read the text simplistically, preeminently, then search it out with further study. Read the text first. And then take time to interpret Scripture with Scripture. Read the text and then consider the commentaries. Read the text and then ask somebody else to explain the meaning of it to you. Listen, if you're you're reading God's Word and you stop for 30 minutes to look up every little detail of every verse, you're never going to get through the Bible. So under this final point, I'm advising you to read the text, read it all. And then when you come across something you don't understand, then, then study it out further. God's word is a narrative. It's a book of stories, stories about God and his grace toward man. So get a hold of the text. Don't stop at every three words and go to your Bible programs and get lost. Some people have never read through the Bible once and they've been Christian for years. What a shame. Just get the whole storyline of Genesis through Revelation. And listen, the more you read it, the more you will come to understand. It's like riding a bike. When you first learn to ride a bike, you have training wheels, right? You get used to riding the bike with training wheels, you take the training wheels off. And then you learn to balance without the training wheels. And then without the training wheels, you go faster and faster. And then you build up confidence. And in your confidence, you do a bunny hop over one jump or one step. And then you build up more confidence and you're going faster and you start doing different tricks you never thought you would do before. And then before you know it, you're on the X Games doing triple backflips. Well, not everybody. But you get my point. Those in the X Games doing these triple backflips started off with training wheels. So we ask ourselves, how do these Christians know God's word? Here it is by repetition, staying, reading and reading and reading, reading, reading the Bible every year. They become more and more familiar. I don't know if that's the helpful analogy, but you don't start on a bike by going down a flight of 10 stairs. You get used to your bike and then you build confidence and you get to know your bike and what you can do on your bike. And then you'd be amazed at the wonders of what you can do. So do you have the 10 points down? Let me give them to you one final time. 10 questions to ask when reading your Bible. Question one, what does the text say? What does it mean? Question two, what is the context of the text? Question three, what does the text teach us about God? Question four, what does the text teach us about man? Question five, what does the text teach us about God's dealings with man and man's response to God? Question six, where are the references of the person and work of Jesus Christ? Question seven, what are the key truths and principles of the text? Question eight, how does the text that I'm reading apply to me? Question nine, what does God want me to believe and obey? And then question ten, what do I struggle to understand that I can study out further? And if you only go home remembering one truth, remember this. The entrance 
of thy word gives light. The more you expose your heart to God's word, the more you will come to understand who God is. God is light. So expose yourself to him through the revelation of his word.